All right, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, as always, When we ponder the psalms, we must consider the emotions these songs were intended to evoke. And we must also consider how these psalms anticipated the coming of the Messiah for post-exilic Israel. Remember that these psalms were written well before the exile, but they were compiled into a sort of songbook for the Israelites after they came back from exile. And the main purpose of that songbook was to give a voice to the many emotions of the people regarding their standing with God and their hope for ultimate redemption in the Messiah. The primary emotion of Psalm 8 is awe and wonder that Almighty Creator God would give us puny humans, even the time of day, much less give us all that He has in creation. Now, a secondary and more subtle emotion is the hopeful anticipation of the Messiah, who will redeem mankind from the curse of sin. Now, the prevailing question regarding Psalm 8 is not, what does this psalm mean? The content is not difficult to grasp. It's clearly speaking about God's glory in creation and his interaction with mankind. The difficulty comes when we consider to whom David is referring when he speaks of man and the son of man. Is this Adam or Jesus or simply all of mankind? We're going to walk through this psalm and consider this question, referring to Genesis 1 and Hebrews 2, which we read earlier. Spoiler alert, I think David is referring to both Adam and Jesus as he looks back to creation and the fall and looks forward to the coming of the Messiah who will fix what Adam broke and do what Adam could not. The psalmist is This psalm is not about us. It's about God's glory in both creation and redemption. We'll consider the glory of the Son of Man first in creation and then in redemption. 
Now David starts off with a glorious anthem of praise in creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But then he immediately runs to a declaration of redemption. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. These first two verses are a sort of summary of the entire psalm. These are the bifocals through which we are to read the rest of the psalm. One half of the lens looking to the past in awe and wonder, the other half of the lens looking in hope to the future. As we consider the glory of the Son of Man in creation, let's look a little closer at verse 1, then we'll see the rest of the psalm with the perspective of the, uh, that the first verse gives. Here David uses parallelism to show the extent of God's glory. His name, his fame, his glory extends throughout the entire earth and even above the heavens. There's no place where his glory cannot be seen and appreciated. This is similar to Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. David may have been looking at the night sky when he wrote this and pondering how glorious and powerful God is to have made the moon and the stars. Genesis 1, 14 through 16 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. It's mind-boggling to think of all those billions and billions of stars in the sky, how each of them is way bigger than our own sun, which is way bigger than the moon and the earth, which are both way bigger than you and me. And God made all those stars almost as an afterthought. He made the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. Oh yeah, he also made the stars. So David considers the amazing creative power of God to have made all the starry hosts with a simple word. And he considers himself a lone member of the human race with all of its messiness and frailty. And he asks a very poignant question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In light of the awesome and infinite power of the almighty creator who made the entire universe by just speaking it into existence, who am I? How do I merit God's attention? 
much less his care. Let's just let that simmer for a bit. This is just staggering to think about. David likely continued thinking through Genesis 1 as he considered how God specially made Adam to bear his image where nothing else in all of creation was made to do that. Genesis 1.26 says that God made man in his image. All of creation tells of the glory of God, but mankind was made to reflect God in a special way. Now, there are a lot of theories on what exactly it means that we are made in God's image, but it's not explained in Genesis 1, and it's not explained in Psalm 8. We're simply going to appreciate our special status in creation as image bearers, whatever that means, rather than spending our time and effort figuring out the nuances of this mystery. Another unique aspect of creation, of the creation of mankind specifically, was God's method of creation. Everything else in creation was spoken into existence, but Adam, Adam was specially formed from the dust of the ground and God intimately breathed life into his lungs. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God made, God made mankind in such a special and intimate way, yet we are so small, weak, frail, lowly, why would God take such an interest in us? Such an interest in creating us and caring for us. Now, I don't know God's ultimate reason. That's for him to know. But I can guess that he is somehow glorified in stooping to care for little old me. Ultimately, though, it's his good pleasure he is mindful of mankind and cares for his special creation simply because he wants to. It brings him pleasure to do so. And this mindfulness and care is seen in the glory and responsibility that he bestowed on Adam in the garden. Psalm 8 verses 5 through 8 say this, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. David has in view the glory and honor God gave Adam in setting him as ruler over all of creation. Everything God had made was placed in Adam's care. He was given dominion over the works of God's hands. All of creation was subject to Adam's rule at the word of the Creator. Every kind of animal in all the world was under Adam's stewardship. Now I say stewardship because the creation did not rightfully belong to Adam. It belonged to God who created it. 
but God appointed Adam to care for, to care for it as a steward. And this stewardship was given to Adam not as the sole ruler of God's creation, but as the first of an entire race of ruling beings. Humanity. But something happened. Because if you look around now, humanity is not ruling God's creation. In fact, many of us are not ruling. Rather, we are ruled by sin. This is where we tip our bifocals and look at this psalm through the lens of verse 2 to see the glory of the Son of Man in redemption. Remember, verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus quoted part of this verse in Matthew 21, 16. The Pharisees were upset that children were saying to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Satan had deceived the Pharisees into self-righteousness. But the children still understood their dependence, their need for a savior. We are all dependent upon Jesus, the son of David, because none of us can be righteous before God apart from him. In Genesis 3, Moses records the tragic scene of mankind falling to sin. But do not think that this was somehow outside of God's sovereignty. We tend to think that the Garden of Eden was what God intended for all of mankind. But God's sovereignty demands that we consider the new heavens and the new earth as what he intended for his people from before time began. God declares the end from the beginning. That means that God made it so that the fall would happen, that his son would die for our sin, that he will return to rule and reign and then bring the new heavens and new earth where we will live in peace and joy forever. God sovereignly decreed before all time that his people would live with him forever, having gone through the fall and redemption through the blood of his son. Just like we do not really know why God stoops to care for us, we do not know the specifics of why he ordained the fall other than his ultimate glory. Consider also that without the fall, we would have no personal experience with God's grace in salvation. And we should not say that it would have been better if Eve had not eaten the fruit, that we would be better off if Adam had just gone to God and asked for forgiveness instead of hiding in his shame. We do not know what would have been we only know what is, and that is sovereignly ordained by God for our good and his glory. 
The immediate results of the fall are tragic, but God is ultimately glorified in it. In Genesis 3.15, God cursed Satan, ultimately promising his defeat at the hands of the offspring of the woman. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman would still the enemy and the avenger. Right at the outset of the curse, God promised redemption through the offspring of the woman. Let's look at verses 3 through 8 of this psalm with our eyes turned toward the glory of the Son of Man in redemption. Now the juxtaposition of verses 3 and 4, comparing God's power in creating the moon and stars to his mindfulness and care of mankind, it takes on a slightly different note post-fall, doesn't it? Not only is it staggering that the almighty, the almighty creator of everything would stoop to care for puny little mankind, but now he stoops to care for mankind who is full of sin and hatred toward him. In the midst of our sinfulness, God sent his only son, the promised offspring of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent by dying on the cross for our sin, cleansing us and redeeming us back into the family of God. This is the theme that the author of Hebrews picks up on when he quotes this in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, which Marcos read earlier. The glory and dominion of verses 5 through 8, which God gave to Adam as recorded in Genesis 1, well, that was corrupted by the fall. Now mankind is not crowned with glory, we are crowned with shame. We do not have dominion. We are dominated by sin. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they failed. But when the same deception was leveled against Jesus, he prevailed. More than that, he redeemed mankind through his death and resurrection. The glory and dominion that Adam lost in the fall right, rightfully belongs to Jesus because he is God. He is the very one who gave Adam that glory and dominion in the first place. Jesus is the conquering hero, coming with a glory and dominion that far exceeds that which was given to Adam. Jesus was humbled as he took on humanity, made a little lower than the angels. But once he died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to the right hand of the majesty on high, he was crowned with glory and honor as the rightful recipient of that glory and honor which was first given to Adam. The author of Hebrews goes on to make his point at the end of chapter two, the whole reason for quoting Psalm 8 in the first place. He says in verses 17 and 18, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to be made a little lower than the heavenly beings. He had to be made human so that he could succeed where Adam failed, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice to redeem mankind, and so that he could be a sympathetic high priest, fully knowing the temptations that plague us every day. When we consider the blessings of Almighty God creating us in His image and giving us a special place in His creation and then redeeming us after the fall, loving us in the midst of our sin and giving us His only Son so that He is the one who has the glory and dominion that is rightfully His, we cannot help but recapitulate the opening line of this psalm as David did. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So with our bifocals, we can see how David wrote this psalm with a, few, uh, with a view of remembrance to the creation account and a view to the hopeful coming of the Messiah who would fix the fall. We have the benefit of living on this side of the cross, just like the author of Hebrews did. We get to look back and see exactly how Jesus fulfilled what David was looking forward to. For David and the post-exile Israelites, this psalm is one of awe-filled remembrance and hopeful longing. But for us, that hopeful longing shifts ever so slightly. For us, we can see how Jesus came to redeem us. But like the author of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We still have a sense of hopeful longing, but our longing is for Jesus to return so that we can live with him forever and so that finally all of God's creation will be cleansed and joyfully ruled by the King of kings and Lord of lords. So remember how much God loves you. The Almighty Creator, who spoke the stars into existence as an afterthought, thinks of you especially and cares for you intimately. Let that love drive you away from sin and into his loving and forgiving embrace. The only thing that stands between you and the everlasting love of God is your sin. But Jesus died to remove your sin and reconcile you to your heavenly Father. All that's required of you is repentant faith. Jesus died to remove your sin, so let it go and turn to him in faith and experience the most intimate love from the most infinite being, the one true almighty God.
Remember also that Jesus is coming back to rule and reign with the greatest authority. I'm looking forward to it. Are you? Amen. Are you waiting in anticipation of his rule in justice and righteousness? Peter wrote about this anticipation. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We should be living lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, this holiness and godliness is not self-righteousness. The motivation for living in holiness and godliness is that living any other way is evidence that we are clinging to that which will be destroyed. Whatever we may sinfully desire and idolize above God, all of it will burn. In light of that, it makes sense to cling to the only thing that will not be destroyed, God himself. And we should be longing for that day to come because when we, then we will no longer be tempted to cling to those doomed idols of our heart. Do you want to be rid of your temptations? I certainly do. We wait for and hasten the day of God, not that we can make it come any sooner, but we anticipate it with a longing and excitement like a little kid on Christmas Eve. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. As we looked at Psalm 8, through our bifocals of redemptive history, let us continue to look back at the evidence of how much God loves us in creation and redemption. Let us also look forward in anticipation for when Jesus returns to rule and reign and we will live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth where sorrow and temptation are no more. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. You are the almighty creator of everything. You made every star we can see, and even the ones we can't see. Your glory is beyond measure, yet you love us so much. Father, it is staggering sometimes to think about how much you have loved us. You gave us your son that we could be reconciled to you from our sin. And we look forward to when you will make all things new, when your son returns to rule and reign and to judge the world in righteousness and ultimately rid the world of all sorrow and temptations. Father, we can't wait we long for that day to come. So, Spirit, we pray that you would empower us every day to resist temptation, 
and cling to Jesus in lives of godliness and holiness. Help us to remind each other of these truths and encourage each other to hope in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.